The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Tuesday, November 13th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So the Democrats in Congress have a choice. They can either stick to a legislative agenda for the people, infrastructure, health care, or they could go willy-nilly or Jerry Nadley investigating the president. That was a Gerald Nadler reference, yes. You've heard this choice. You've heard about this choice, right? The editorialists are saying this is their choice. But then the question comes up, can they do both? Incoming Representative Alyssa Slotkin says yes. So we can walk and chew gum. Chris Wallace on Fox concurs. Can Congress and the president walk and chew gum at the same time? Chris Wallace's guest on Fox brings it up too. You can do both. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. Walk and chew gum. It's not just a cliche. It's the way that Democrats are going to get things done. Now, I know this is the idiom that says, do two things at once. But we all realize that this idiom predates our modern society, correct? And in our modern society, anyone who's just doing one thing at once is almost monastic in his or her powers of concentration. Like, I can pay attention to Gloria Borger on CNN saying this. Will all of them be able to walk and chew gum at the same time and compartmentalize? While at the same time, listening to the Axe Files podcast, which is a CNN-affiliated podcast hosted by David Axelrod, where the guest, the same Gloria Borger, said this. But you can walk and chew gum at the same time. Yes. Come on. It's 2018. We need an update. How about, listen, I could do the kids' math homework and watch the Knicks lose at the same time. Or I can update my operating system and scoop the cat litter at the same time. Or if you're a woman, I could nurse and text the boss at the same time. Or if you're a man, I could set my fantasy football lineup and forward you a stupid meme at the same time. We could do better. We can, in fact, walk, chew gum, choke on the gum, ask Alexa for Heimlich advice, spit out the gum, and Google if vomited up gum can be composted all at the same time. What I'm saying is I want Trump's tax records. And I don't care if you're chewing Juicy Fruit or Bazooka. When you subpoena him, just get the tax records. On the show today, I spiel about how you can't spell Amazon Corporate HQ without an A and an O and a C, but maybe you can't spell it without AOC either. That's what uh, that's what kids in the know call Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But first, over 5,000 troops are currently amassed near the U.S. border with Mexico in support of a mission once called Operation Faithful Patriot. The Pentagon realized this was an embarrassingly overwrought name, so they are not branding the mission to support the seemingly sufficient border patrol as anything other than just field operations. But to me, this is a nakedly partisan misuse of the military. That is my opinion. I wanted to talk to a veteran who talks about and reports on military issues for a living now about this and other things. Jack Murphy of SoftRep up next. So lately, I've been, I will say, obsessing about certain military news. 
And it is not just that the president went to France and didn't participate in a ceremony honoring World War I veterans, but it is the deployment of over 5,000, and President Trump promises 15,000 troops near the U.S. border as a means to combating a caravan that seems to be, let us say, greatly exaggerated. In fact, I've been uh, quasi-infuriated about this because there are all sorts of military undertakings that you could debate the wisdom of, but this seems to me to be beyond debate. So what I like to do is I have a few sources, um, a few outlets where military voices talk about what they think. One is uh, I go to Duffel Blog, which is kind of more of a funny Facebook site. I subscribe to a site called Task and Purpose, which I think is really good. And I listen to a podcast called Soft Rep, now part of the News Rep family, and it was started by Jack Murphy, who served as a sniper and team leader in the 3rd Ranger Battalion and is a senior weapons sergeant on a military free fall team in the 5th, you know, you know how it goes with these military (laughs) credentials. But he's certainly a warrior, and now he's a journalist, and I think he went, Jack, you got, what, an advanced degree at Columbia after serving? Bachelor's degree. Bachelor's degree. Okay, not that advanced. We don't want to. We don't want to brag too much. But I wanted to talk to someone who talks about military issues and with military people all the time about some of the recent developments concerning our military. Jack Murphy is here. Thanks for coming in, Jack. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's talk about the quote-unquote border deployment before the troops got involved. When this was an issue, what were you saying? What were people who are interacting with you on your various uh, outlets saying about uh, the caravan? I mean, I could only speak, you know, unofficially, I mean, and just casual anecdotal observations, but I mean, some people pretty freaked out by it. Um, I think there were a lot of people who are concerned about illegal immigration and they saw the caravan as sort of, it was sort of the, the confirmation of the worst nightmare for people who are on the right. Uh, it was this invasion of people from the Southern Hemisphere. I, I think it's mostly a horse and pony show. Uh, ponies and balloons. It's a a political gesture. There's this uh, ramping up, this escalation, and the more this this sort of fears about a migrant caravan and invasion of our soil are amped up, the more pressure there is. And it's really a cynical way, I think, to play up the issue of illegal immigration. Um, We've been kicking the can down the road on that for decades. You know, some of these things should have been resolved back during the Clinton administration, at least. And every subsequent president has kind of kicked the can. And at the end of the day, I mean, we can see now the uh, Congress is uh, has gone to the Democrats and Republicans have the Senate. I mean, Donald Trump's wall is clearly not going to happen at this point. That's over. So we're just kind of beating this drum for as a political distraction and deploying such a small number of troops. They what is it, 5,000? Yeah, I think it's like 5,600. I yeah. mean, they can't possibly secure a border that's that long. What can they do, just militaristically? Uh, they, they could shore up some key areas. Yeah. Um, from what we're told, that's not even happening. Well, they're, they can't make they're, arrests. They're in a, right, they don't have arrest authority, so yeah. they're kind of pointless, right? Yeah. Um, and we're told, at least, that they're purely going to be in support positions. So they're going to be driving the trucks, moving the pallets of water bottles, <laughs> things like this. So uh, it's even more pointless than that. If we were to do anything, it would be to um, mobilize and train more immigration officers, right? That would be a more 
plausible long-term solution. Does it upset you? Does it infuriate you? Have you just said politics are politics and I don't get upset with them no matter what they do? I mean, I know this sounds quite jaded of me. Um, I guess I do accept that it's politics as usual to some extent. I mean, we've been fighting a war for 17 freaking years. We've been in Afghanistan sending people back and forth, back and forth, guys coming home in body bags for what? What is the strategic purpose? What's the end game? And there's none. So, yeah, I mean, my my faith in government is a little tarnished on oh, that end. Okay, so are you saying you look at the really serious and deadly consequences of politics like Afghanistan and if not the fact of Iraq, but the execution of Iraq? Right, right. You, and those are serious. It's hard for you to get too ginned up about something that will not put any Americans' lives in danger. Yeah, and I mean, that might be the wrong approach for me and for our fellow Americans to have that kind of jaded approach. But uh, it... it from my perspective, the military is used and abused for political purposes, and that's nothing new. But I thought this was working for Trump. I mean, I thought that, like, if you looked at polls of military people, they love the guy, and they might not love the fact that he hugs a flag, but I don't know. He seems to hug a flag, and they love him. They, I don't know if it's correlated, but both things are uh, going on. Well, there are definitely plenty of Trump supporters in the U.S. military, and, uh, and the military has always skewed right. Um, but it's also. Politics has become a zero-sum game in this country, hasn't it? And, yeah. you know, our, our service members are placed in the same situation as every other American where there are two people on the ballot. It's like, okay, pick one. Um, what do you think the effect of this deployment, if nothing really goes on, uh, of this deployment at the border will be for the 19th Engineer Battalion or the military police unit? You know, will they just, the 89th Military Police Brigade, do you think they'll, their overall morale for the next mission will suffer? Do you think that uh, there are any long-term effects other than the, re- the resentment at the inconvenience of being there? And I suppose some of them probably fully support the mission, but what do you think will happen? Uh, I mean, it, it'll be a mixed bag. I think it's like any any other deployment that soldiers go on and experience may vary. Yeah. Uh, some soldiers will probably get disenfranchised with the military and and, and decide to leave the military and, and Disenchanted get out. with the military. Right. Yeah. Disenchanted with it. And uh, others will say, hey, look, job's a job. Collect some per diem. Go home. Warm up for the next deployment. You know, it is what it is. And, you know, you're a soldier. You do what you're told. Right. So have you been, when you were in the military, did you and your your unit ever get assignments that you thought were specifically based on politics? I, I think there were missions that were pushed on us um, related to intra-politics. Mm-hmm. Um, not that it was like partisan politics, like this is coming from a, a Democratic or a Republican agenda. Right. I think it's uh, some of the missions that were pushed on us at times were related to inter-military politics about this task force thinks things should be run this way and this colonel thinks it should be like that. Um, I, I don't think that I was necessarily sent on any missions that were related to political partisanship. Okay, so when you're sent on a mission and the reason that the mission is occurring is not 100% because it will achieve our objectives in the best way. How does that affect you? Uh, it's uh, demoralizing. And, and But even worse than that, what, what that can kind of relate to, what can end up happening is soldiers doing their own thing. Yeah. When they're not giving guidance, when there isn't a strategic or tactical vision or mission, uh, soldiers will start freelancing and doing their job the way they think is appropriate. Um, I could tell you some pretty funny stories about stuff like that where like we were ordered uh, when I was in special forces, we were ordered to hit this house. Um, and so was the previous ODA that was there before us. And 
everyone knew these people were innocent, but the special operations task force kept having us go hit it or we're sending the rangers in to blow down the door. So we'd end up going and we wouldn't hit the house. We'd just knock on the door and have tea with them. Okay, there's nobody bad here. Go back and report it. But every month or so, it was the same thing. Go back, go back, go back. And I found out down the line that it was because there was an interpreter who heard through signals intercepts. She thought somebody talking on their cell phone in that house sounded like a terrorist like she the, had the heard vocal previously. quality the vocal, yeah she not, did not, a vocal idea not like yeah. some mission impossible voice spectrum analyzer right, right, or some right. forensic science it was just i think that sounds like a terrorist so every month or so they'd order us back there and that to me is just an example of so instead of going and blowing the door down we just go knock on the door and have chai with them yeah. that's an example of when soldiers start freelancing they start saying eh, this mission's dumb we're not going to do it do the soldiers usually know right no best not always yeah. i mean they, they respond to what information they have you know and and as a a a door kicker so to speak you don't always have all of the information is that a sign of do you think that in any uh war things like that will happen and it's up to the soldier to kind of manage that and know that a certain small percentage of our missions will be of this nature like maybe you can massage what the actual um order is or or just once the soldier starts making that judgment is there something very dangerous occurring? Uh, it can go either way. I mean, you don't want to have soldiers freelancing. You don't want to have soldiers hijacking foreign policy. Right. But at the same time, well, you know, one of the things that came out of World War II, of course, is that you have an obligation to disobey illegal orders. I don't want to disregard the, the individual cognitive process of the soldier on the ground. We want them to be able to think for themselves. Um, some, that's why we have one thing in the military is called the commander's intent. So if you're on the way to destroy a enemy base and you come across a hidden cache of ammunition, you destroy that because your overall commander's intent is to degrade, defeat, and destroy the enemy, right? Right, right. So you're not, uh, you're not just marching in lockstep. You are a thinking soldier. And, um, because of the complexity of the battlefields we deploy soldiers to t- these days, they have to be more and more intellectual. They have to be more and more engaged and, and be able to make their own decisions and think on their feet. Do you think they're talking about it may cost, if it gets up to 15,000, the cost could be 200 million. I know that doesn't matter to the soldier on the individual level, but what's your analysis of that? Um, is that a lot of money to, seems like 200 million, but in the broad scope of military spending, maybe it's not. Yeah, well, I mean, the Pentagon sneezes at $200 million. That's true. They laugh at your $200 million. <laughs> it's like, what, four hammers? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. But, jeez, uh, ah, I mean, you got to figure that there's something better. It, it depends what the soldiers accomplish as well. What are they down there really doing and what's going to be the, the end state? What are, well, that's another thing. To me, it seems like there's no, there's nothing tangible that can be accomplished. Right. Like, you do your job well, you what, hand the actual border patrol agent six pallets of water? Like, what is a success? <laughs> You're on a mission that's, again, not dangerous, which is good, though you were trained for danger. Right. So what the hell are you doing biding your time in this in, in a tent and, you know, showering in seven-minute showers? I saw a report somewhere that said, like, uh, a third of the soldiers deployed are actually public affairs officers. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. so they're down there writing, like, little news stories for, like, uh, you know, military papers and <laughs> taking photographs and things like this. That's a lot of public affairs officers. But it, but it, but it allows the White House to say we have X number of troops deployed. Yeah. Right? And that's yeah. that's the real point. So of the big problems or the big issues with uh, – we have a military and people who've served 
and then we have civilians, and they have been growing further and further apart over the years. I mean, there's no draft, and I think that's a good thing, yeah. both for the military and for pe- and for our civilians as a whole. But it's almost like it's an enclave, mm-hmm. and the the civilian and military overlap. I mean, it's really acute in some cities, and like non-existent around here in Brooklyn. Like, <laughs> do you think it's a big problem, and what should we do about it? Yeah, it. It is a problem, and I have kind of a different perspective on it because I think that a lot of um, my peers come home and they almost want to, like, shame our culture into acknowledging yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't think you can do that, and I think you have to understand that the average guy out there is working, trying to put food on their table for their family. They're, they're, they have real-life problems in front of them, and it doesn't mean that uh, American citizens should be apolitical or ahistorical or ignore the things that are going on in our society and, and with our soldiers who they go and they fight in our name, whether we agree with it or not. Right. Um, but as, as veterans, we have to come home and we have to take that step towards our own culture and, and acknowledge uh, acknowledge the country that we live in and that we fought for. And uh, our society can't thank us for our service every minute of every day. Yeah. <laughs> well, I also think that, or I've detected a strain among people who were or are in the military, that they look at the general culture as soft, and they're not. Yeah, Um Again, it goes both ways. I mean, I think there's a lot of insecurity amongst military veterans because of the separation largely that you're mentioning that um, we come back with this experience that, you know, for in my, my experience, I was a Green Beret. I was a Ranger. I, I jumped out of airplanes. I deployed to Afghanistan, Iraq. I did all of these things. You come back to Brooklyn. Yeah. Nobody cares. No. Nobody even knows. Yeah. And that's why you see guys who did their 20 years in the military. They were the sergeant major of special operations command and they stay around Fort Bragg and they get a civilian job working on Fort Bragg because people will still address them by their former rank there. You come back to a place like this and it's not only do they not care, people just don't know. They just don't know anything about that military culture. And what's happening is that a smaller and smaller segment of the American population is being asked to shoulder a larger and larger burden of fighting all of these wars all over the world with no end in sight. Jack Murphy is a military writer who served as an airborne ranger and special forces sergeant. So in other words, he went from what polls say is the most respected institution in America, the military, (laughs) to the media, which is like the second or third least respected. And he's the managing editor at SoftRep, which is now NewsRep. Yes. Thank you, Jack. Thank you. And now the spiel. America's wealthiest company has agreed to locate a major corporation hub in your backyard. This will bring jobs, generate tax revenue, and because it's Amazon, which has a history of programs that benefit the homeless and local communities, it will be good for all. I mean, who could be against this? Well, a socialist could. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, in a series of tweets, questioned Amazon's decision to choose Queens and Northern Virginia as hosts of what was called HQ2. AOC is against Amazon. Sorry, I'm having trouble understanding right now. Yeah, I know. 
Now, AOC actually does raise some good points, as I will detail. And it turns out that her pushing back on this could actually greatly benefit New Yorkers. If nothing else, it's a good negotiating ploy. This is the crazy man theory of negotiations. You have a wild-eyed socialist threatened to blow up negotiations. And then even the liberal Democrat governor and Democrat mayor, Cuomo and de Blasio, go to Amazon and they say, look, I got this problem. Her name is Alexandra. She's kind of a live wire. Work with me here, Jeff. Work with me, Jeff. Jeffrey, Jeffala, Bubala. Bezos Bala. All New York City negotiations become old Jewish guys, even if the guys are Italian. And by the way, Andrew Cuomo is the most Jewish Italian guy this side of Paul Giamatti. But it's not just Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez objecting. Local residents were apprehensive. Originally, no one wanted to come out here. Now everyone wants to come out here, so help us out. Help the community. Yeah, me, I think it sucks. First the jets leave flushing, and now Amazon comes. We just can't have nice things. I don't really want Amazon here. Why not? I don't know. It's too much. Too much Amazon. Yeah, I don't know. Queens, it's all cutting edge and everything. But I seen Jeff Bezos' code, and it is subpar. Subpar. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's objections were a bit more cogent than those lovable Queens residents. She tweeted, quote, Amazon's a billion-dollar company. The idea that it will receive hundreds of millions of dollars in tax breaks at a time when our subway is crumbling and our communities need more investment, not less, is extremely concerning to residents here. She also writes, displacement is not community development. Investing in luxury condos is not the same thing as investing in people and families. No, investing in luxury condos isn't investing in people and families, except maybe for the families that live in luxury condos. Because a lot of the 25,000 jobs that will land at Amazon HQ2, or maybe it's, I don't know, HQ 1.5 now, but a lot of those jobs will be of the six-figure variety. And some of those people will want to live, maybe have to live, in luxury condos. Now, of course, by doing so... I guess they'll cease to become people, uh, people with families, because, you know, people don't live in luxury condos. Not really. AOC also writes, we need to focus on good health care, livable wages, affordable rent, corporations that offer none of these things should be met with skepticism. Agreed. Luckily, Amazon offers their employees who will be working at HQ2 excellent health care coverage, very high wages. And in America, companies don't house people. They pay people so they can afford housing. So let me put a hold on my snark for a second. I'm going to click on three to five day shipping on the snark. Ocasio-Cortez is right that all cities and her constituents who aren't actually in Long Island City, but she's in the next district, they need affordable housing and they need health care. However, opposing America's wealthiest company setting up a hub of profit and payments and taxes has nothing to do with the goal of affordable housing. The high wages that Amazon pays might drive up housing right near the Amazon headquarters, but let's keep wages low as a means of keeping housing affordable. That is the Daily Callers cartoon version of socialism that they accuse Ocasio-Cortez of believing in, but that she surely doesn't believe in. If Amazon employs 25,000 people and they make an average of $100,000 a year, and by the way, I looked it up, the kind of jobs going there will be those kind of jobs. They're not fulfillment center jobs. It means they're injecting in salary. They're paying out $2.5 billion to their employees. New York City, just the city taxes at its highest rate above $50,000 at 3.8%. So this means every year the city 
just the city and just in taxes, will be taking in $100 million. That says nothing of state taxes or corporate taxes or the gigantic spillover effect of having all those wealthy people in this neighborhood and all the stores they will patronize and all the yoga instructors they will employ. Plus, Amazon has vowed to invest about two and a half billion dollars in its campus and related projects, and they will invest in infrastructure and they have vowed to invest in green space development. By all means, let us hold them accountable to those promises. But some local officials, even aside from Ocasio-Cortez, are opposed. This is city councilman Jimmy Van Brammer. It is not just a bad deal. It's a deal that literally tugs at the soul of who we are as a city. A deal that promises the richest man in the world almost $3 billion in subsidies to beg him to come here. The councilman there is speaking on Skype. In opposition to the deal, Skype owned by Microsoft, Amazon competitor, in cloud storage, possibly conflict of interest. I'm just saying. I'm not saying. Also, I hear the councilman's been watching the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which might also be a conflict of interest. That's the deal with Amazon. Everything's a conflict of interest. But what we need to talk about, you and I, right now, and the councilman, if he wants to listen uh, on Skype, is subsidies, the nature of subsidies. As Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez writes, here echoing the councilman's jibe about the richest man in America. She writes, Amazon is a billion-dollar company. The idea that it will receive hundreds of millions of dollars in tax breaks at a time when our subway is crumbling and our communities need more investment, not less, is extremely concerning. Yeah, customers who bought that also bought Abolish Ice and Medicare for All. Because here's the deal. The tax breaks... and. Maybe I don't have to say this. Maybe you know this, but I've been reading a lot of Twitter. I don't think a lot of people know this. The tax breaks that they're getting, they're not coming out of the taxpayers' paychecks. They're not coming out of the budget or the general fund. They are discounts from what the company would be paying were the company to pay the full rate. But municipalities offer, and in this courting process, Amazon got a lot of municipalities to offer a lot. Municipalities offer incentives because they figure if they don't land the company at all, their tax coffers won't increase one bit. And they are right about that. Before Amazon settled on New York and Northern Virginia, there were reports about how much some other cities were offering. And Newark, I think Maryland was in this bag too, Newark offered something like $7 billion in tax incentives. That seems really high to me. And since it was offered by Chris Christie when he was governor, I don't know if we could take it in good faith, though Cory Booker was there cheering on Christie with the offer. But this is the calculation that Newark and New Jersey made. If they come here, we'll get something. If they don't, we'll get nothing. So now that Amazon's not going to Newark, the, oh my God, they're getting a tax break crowd, I guess should be saying, woo, Newark dodged a bullet, but that is incorrect. It would be more logical to rue the fact that Newark is getting nothing in tax revenue because they have no Amazon. One day a document may leak that says Amazon was going to take Newark. But instead of $7 billion in tax incentives, they needed $8 billion. This is just a hypothetical. But if that were true, then it would be the case that Newark was stupid not to actually have offered $8 billion. Now, look, there is some point 
when the tax breaks are so extreme that the costs that a company visits upon a municipality are more than they actually give back. You know, you have to spend some more on the sewers and some infrastructure updates, and it would be nice if the MTA, maybe subsidized by Amazon, added some extra subway stops or at least bus lines. And that costs some money. But in general, the amount that a municipality or a state or a city gets from a giant wealthy company is so much more than the amount they pay. New York City's $1.5 billion in reported subsidies are so far from a situation where the cost outstrips the benefit. I will concede the following. Governments falling all over each other to outdo each other with tax breaks in the aggregate is a bad move. It would be better if all local governments scrapped this. But then you have a tragedy of the commons race to the bottom situation where one doesn't. They have an advantage. And here we are today, companies playing municipalities against each other for sweetheart deals. And also, let me say, now that Amazon has committed to New York, I do want New York to drive a hard bargain. You too, Arlington. We could perhaps loan you a firebrand 29-year-old congresswoman. No, we can't. We actually can't. I think there is one huge downside to the Amazon move, by the way. And it's not that New York and Virginia won. It's that Columbus didn't, and Austin didn't, and Nashville didn't. Because I have no solution to the erosion of the job base in the industrial Midwest. And if a company like Amazon is only interested in setting up their headquarters in blue states with already progressive metropolitan populations, I cannot see a means to bring old economies into the new world. I hope that HQ3 or HQ4 winds up in the Midwest or the Deep South, and maybe someday those jobs and that government tax revenue will give rise to a Democratic or even progressive voter base. And those voters will vote for a socialist politician, and that politician will cry foul when the next company wants to come in and give them free money and jobs. And that will put the progress in progressive. And that's it for today's show. PRBNMA and Daniel Schrader are hoping for their own version of HQ2, which will be a reboot of that trivia app, but with a host who's even more self-consciously awkward, maybe has a thicker beard. It's the fix. TJ Raphael is Slate's senior producer when it comes to podcasting, and she is angling for an invite to the HQ2 BBQ, which will include drone-pulled pork and one-click chicken. The gist... We're going for DQDQ2, which is the disqualification of any Dairy Queen that does not serve a blizzard at the proper temperature. Disquieting, I know. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>